Welcome to On the Continent. It's the place to be for everything to do with European football throughout the seasons. But right here, right now, we've got the Euros locked down. I'm Dotson Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Nikki Bandini. Today, we're wrapping up the tournament with a look back at two cracking semi-finals and looking ahead to Sunday at Wembley when England take on Italy for what will be the final countdown. So... It's 11109876543321. We'll look back at the whole month of this festival of football that uh, seldom failed to deliver. And we're looking ahead to next season as well and the musical chairs of transfers beforehand. Where will European football's best players end up after this summer? So, Nikki first. Italy versus England at Wembley. How excited are you? I'm pretty flipping excited, Dutton. This is a, this is an exciting final. I um I tweeted this after the England game. I my first real football awakening, I guess, as a kid, was watching the nineteen ninety World Cup. And You've got both sides there, haven't you? Right. I'm half English and half Italian. So you've got the journey along that way when we were talking in our house a lot about how that could be the final and we were going to play each other and then it became the third and fourth game because honestly like I was a kid and didn't didn't sort of I suppose feel the importance of a World Cup in the same way as I might now it was still Italy versus England and third place is pretty good so I was still very excited for it and in our household there was this big conversation because I've got a brother and it was okay so who's going to support who who's on which side and and it was a big event and and to be how many years is it since 1990 god I'm terrified this sort of math 31 years 31 years later to have um the same teams my teams both in the final this time not a world cup but a final and it to be happening in London it's amazing it's amazing it's amazing, and we'll talk in a moment or two about the match on Sunday, Andy. But let's start off with two cracking semi-finals. We couldn't have asked for anything better, could we? No, we we couldn't have. And they were not just both brilliant, but both really different as well um, in terms of the styles of the teams, in terms of the way they mesh together. Um, all of it, really. I think. The, the interesting thing about this, this, the second semi-final, the better team definitely won that. <laughs> the, f- the first, the first semi-final. I mean, where where did that Spain performance even come from? Because they've they've had a globally good tournament. They've got talent there. It's clear they've got the right man in charge in Luis Enrique. But I guess that's if if we want to boil it down to the simple, young people are difficult to predict <laughs> and and Spain do have a young team although arguably their most reliable player was the youngest one Pedri who had an incredible tournament there have been a lot of shouts for player of the tournament Spinazzola uh, Raheem Sterling um, various others um, Casper Schmeichel I suppose he was one of the ones who, who I think should have been in the mix I mean for Pedri to when Luis Enrique said afterwards what he's done, I haven't seen that from Andres Iniesta. 
I mean, that is a lot to throw on an 18-year-old. You've got to be pretty sure he's going to be cool with that. And and now he's off to the Olympic Games because he loves playing football so much. He just oh, does. That's a, ridiculous. It is, a bit it is ridiculous. Him, actually. Someone needs to step in, really, and say that can't happen. Because he's already and played about 60 games, more than 60 games, I think. He has. This. And, and there, there, are, there are quite a few of that squad who are going. Oyasabal's going. Partores is going. It's insane, quite frankly, that they should be playing that. But going back to that, that that the first semi-final, I thought the way that I've seen it described by a, a few people who know what they're talking about as Italy was second best on the night but deserved it on the entirety of the tournament. I, I think that's a pretty fair way of putting it. That they have they have been at least one of the two best teams in in in, in this tournament. That they they were fantastic. They still are being fantastic. And I guess it goes back. I mean, you've been to both the Wembley games, Nicky. I know what it is about Wembley that Italy have played some ridiculously flamboyant football in this tournament, notably the first half against Belgium, which I think is the pinnacle of the tournament, full stop. Mm. And yet at Wembley, they've just found a way to win. I don't know if just is the right word. They've found <laughs> a way to win as opposed to winning well, with the found, style that we're used to the, time, the rest of the tournament. Yeah, exactly. Um, Whereas every other game, first of all, hasn't been extra time and most of them have been fairly comfortable. No, it's true. The thought crossed my mind. I hope it's not um, a Wembley curse for Italy because that would be awful. But I don't know. I, I, I think that it's really sort of tempting to look at this and go, oh, Italy weren't as good as they have been the rest of the tournament. And therefore, they obviously were wrong. What was wrong with Italy? Whereas I just felt like Luis Enrique got this so right. Mm. I think... If there was a weakness with the Spanish team, I think there is a weakness with the Spanish team and it's the defence. The defence is, is bad. And even in this game, there were a couple of moments of, of miscommunication with Unai Simon. There was one where Barella couldn't get the ball out from under his feet in the first half where I felt like Italy should have scored. Um, where Simon would go walk about, the defenders weren't communicating well. And you think all through the tournament, this was kind of the issue with Spain. Mm. There was the one that he let run under, run under his foot, but there was also Pau Torres running into his teammate and all sorts of mishaps. So... Both of these teams came into the game as teams that needed or thought they needed to hold the ball to play their game. But actually, maybe Spain needed to hold the ball more. Maybe Spain thought, if we can't hold the ball, we really are just going to lose. Whereas Italy clearly found a way to win without holding the ball. And I think, therefore, having sort of come to that conclusion that if we don't have the ball, we aren't going to be able to do this because our defence has problems. That decision to bring in Almo to basically say we're not going to have an out-and-out striker because we just want to make absolutely certain that we're flooding those parts of the mm. pitch where we can hold the ball, where we can get the ball. I think that was such a, a validated decision by everything that happened because they completely owned the ball. It was more than 70%, I think, even by the end of mm. extra time, which is astonishing given that Italy were, I think, number three in possession at this tournament. And if Morata starts, he can't come on and change the game <laughs> well, as, as, as well. <laughs> you see, I think if there was a weakness and... Uh, in this, by the way, Daniel Olmo was brilliant. He He's was so just good. amazing. If there was a weakness with this Spanish team on the night, it was um, Oithabel mm. because he missed so many chances. And that begs the question about this false nine. Spain were mesmerizing in possession, but they just couldn't finish over and over again. Well, but, I don't know how many shots it was that Almo took over the course of the tournament, but it was quite a lot by the end because I saw someone was sort of live tweeting that even during the game, like mm. another shot without. And if there was one thing I really didn't understand was 
poor Danny Almer, who's been taking all these shots and not scoring. Why on earth was he the first person to take a penalty? Mm. I, of all mm. the people, the one who's just not been able to score. Good question. Yeah, I'm, I mean, my, my wife did say to me, and sometimes you need someone outside the football bubble for a bit more clarity. Yeah. Why did they let Morata take a penalty? Yeah. And I, I think that's part of it. But it's, it's difficult. I think as a coach, you have to go on trust. You have to ask the players who, who feel right about it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's part of, you're partly relying on them saying, yeah, I feel good. I feel good about taking penalty mm. number one or penalty number four or, 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 or whatever. But I mean, what you were saying about that reliable number nine, that, that's, that's the thing for Spain, isn't it? That Morata, who had a really strange tournament, a pretty good tournament, I would say, on the whole, despite the fact that he, he missed some chances. If you're relying on him as your main guy, as your alpha number nine, you've got an issue. But like, because as, as a second striker, He's, he's, he's got everything and he, he can win the ball in the air and do all that sort of stuff that, that is the thing because he can hold the ball up he can score headers but he can't be the focal point that's the thing like, it just doesn't work for him I think even if you look at the goal he scored even if he gets in the spot and finishes it very nicely it's because he creates it really so he starts in that second striker place and then he hasn't really got the time to think about it. He gets in the spot and just puts it puts it away beautifully. But, you know, if they had a Diego Costa, or obviously a serviceable Diego Costa, I, th- I think it's maybe a different story for, for Spain. You know, it's really interesting what Andy says, because I think in the way that you analyse Morata's role there in that match against uh, Italy, England should be looking at that as to how they use Harry Kane. And we'll come on to that in a moment or two. But there are two sides to this semi-final, Nikki. Um, it's great talking about how wonderful Spain were. I know, I was just thinking we've been talking how good Spain were. They didn't win. They didn't <laughs> how have you allowed this? <laughs> no, it's a good question. <laughs> I knew we were going to come to this. I said yesterday when I texted you, we we're going to argue about this one. Uh-huh. But... Spain, Italy started off on the front foot and they dominated the first, you know, 10, 15 minutes of the match. Mm -hmm. You thought, wow, this is going to be another great Italy performance and they're going to walk it. And then things seemed to change. It seemed to be, for me, and and you know how much I love Insignia, it seemed to me that they had the better of Insignia. There was was one moment, for example, when the Spanish defence... um, I think it was Aspilicueta uh, realised that the only thing that you should, or the one thing you should never allow Insigne to do is come on his right, to go uh, mm-hmm. from the left on his right and just push him to the left. And it seemed like they'd, they'd, they'd got him covered. They, they, they managed to just neutralise his threat. And I thought that was a big miss for Italy. They didn't know any, how to do anything about that. They should maybe moved him around a bit more. Yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's lots of layers to it. Lorenzo Insigne is... Ultimately, for someone who's very tricky with his feet and, and sort of in the in the minutiae of it is is very unpredictable. In in the big picture, he's quite predictable. He wants to come in off that flank, do exactly what he did against Belgium, and put the ball across you. Now, the thing is, a bit like Arhan Robin, if you're good enough at it, it doesn't matter. If you're mm. good enough at doing it, then your opponents can't stop you. Now, the problem I think Insignia had in this game really does all start with the fact that he doesn't have Spinazzola outside him anymore. Because when you had those two, actually both of them liked to come inside like that. And I think they had a really um, 
um, natural understanding between the two of them that they needed to dovetail, that sometimes one would go outside more often, but not always. One of them needed to move outside and one of them needed to come inside. And when you had both of them doing that, actually, that's when you get those situations like in Belgium where there's just there's too much happening. Your defenders can't plan for everything. You've got to pick pick your poison, what you're going to deal with. With Emerson, I was watching him quite closely in the first half. And I actually, strangely, in the first half, particularly thought he came out as one of Italy's better players. But it was like he was doing things that were okay on his own. He wasn't doing them in sync mm. with Insigne. There was a moment when he got all the way up the pitch, which is exactly what I was worried he wouldn't be able to do with, without Spinazzola there, because Spinazzola's pace has been so important. Got all the way up the pitch, but then suddenly he was in the middle and he was just isolated. And it, it's, an, it's a single moment in a game, and I'm certain I could go back and find plenty of moments where Spinazzola got lost or Insigne got lost and they didn't quite come together in that way. But I just think there was none of that synchronicity between them, which is so fundamental to to why Insigne has been able to be so effective at this tournament. You know, he has different dynamic with different players at Napoli, but it's the same thing. You have someone who you are used to working with and it's the same as, oh God, I don't know why this comparison is in my head, but I just remember being asked about PSG at some point last season when someone was asking, oh, who's more important to them, Mbappe or Neymar? And the point is, it's both of them. The point is when you've got to deal with both things as a defender, it's a completely different game. And when you are defending Insigne and you can think, right, we're not that worried about the person who's overlapping him or we don't think that's a threat. It's not, it's never that hard, except with a very small number of players like Leo Messi. It's never that hard to, to, to ruin one player's day if that's your goal. If your goal is to just stop one player, you can normally find out. I always do that. But having said that, they had a proper number nine in Chiesa. Uh, what a brilliant goal that he scored, Italy. Yeah, and um, it's, it's a funny thing, uh, because if you look back on, we, we've, we've talked about it on here before, last season, the best bits of Juventus last season, which, of course, statistically, Cristiano Ronaldo's Serie A's top scorer, and we have to respect that. The bits where it felt like Juventus were moving forward was where Morata and Chiesa linked meaningfully. Those were the bits where it felt like there was a bit of progress with Juventus. And it felt to me when they signed Chiesa, that it might go the Bernadeschi route. He's a nice to have, but you don't really need him. But this strength of will with which he imposes himself on situations is something that's quite remarkable. The talent is one thing, but I think, especially at his age, at 23, to come in and say, I'm owning this situation, that's something different. And that is something that marks him out as a real star of the future. Bear in mind he was probably a little bit controversially not not a first pick yeah. at the start of the tournament that Berardi played in instead of him. Now that says a lot about the versatility of the Italian squad and it was clear that he was going to come in and do something at some point. Mm-hmm. But for the final, he's unleaveoutable, right? Well, did you know, it's really fascinating because um, I never know how much these moments are clear on TV or not. When Chiesa scored that goal, Berardi had been waiting in the dugout with his tracksuit off for at least a minute. Mm. Like he'd been there for a while. And I still don't know, because I don't think anyone asked that question, whether or not Mangini was actually intending to take Chiesa off. He might have been. He ends up taking um, Immobile off. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have, um, well, first of all, I think Federico Chiesa is a sensational footballer. I think he's one of the players in that Italy squad who actually has 
levels in him to go really beyond, to be really one of the best players in the world, which, mm. are, you know, some of those players are really good players and that's not a knock on them because those are players who are going to play at the highest levels of European competition. But we all know there's a difference between really good players and special players. And I think Keita looks like one of those players who could really be a special player. At the same time, I do think he's selfish. I think that one of the things that um, that worked one of the reasons that he was so effective at, at Juventus this season, um, or at least he stood out so much at Juventus this season, was because the collective at Juventus was a mess. But he was a player who could just take over situations on his own sometimes. Mm. And I actually wondered against Spain if, of course, he scores the goal. So I'm wrong. But I, there was definitely a period when I was thinking, wouldn't this have been better the other way around? With Berardi just to make the system work for, for 60 minutes. Mm. And then when you need the goal as happened earlier in the tournament, that's when you introduce the player who can do it all on his own. So I actually don't know on that one. I, I'm not knocking Kiers at all, because like I said, I think he's, in terms of pure talent, I mean, who else in that squad is 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 on a level with him? I, mean, I, I really like Jorginho, which I know a lot, a lot of people don't, but I really do. And 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 maybe Verratti, but... He I, makes Italy make sense, actually, Jorginho, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah, I, I think Jorginho is just one of those players. Maurizio Sadi said this, um right before that uh, semi-final and I think even within that semi-final because I wrote an article about him and some people were like he was awful he just wasn't he's one of those players who you need to watch throughout the game watch him for 90 minutes and and don't just watch what the TV feed is showing you he's so so important to making that midfield work at all and even though Italy did not have the ball anything like what they wanted to it would have been much much worse if he wasn't there Um, but but yes, I think Chiesa is in that bracket of players who can be really, really special. And yet at the same time, part of me thinks, should he be starting? And that, I get why that sounds ridiculous. You, no, you... no, it, it, it doesn't though, does it? Because I, I think it's like when Jack Grealish comes on to influence a game for England, the clamour is for him to start rather than thinking, actually, he works really well being mm. used in this way. I think we shouldn't forget what Andy said a moment ago, that it was a tale of two semifinals, at one of which the best team won. Should you talk about that one? Well, I mean, we could talk some more about Italy, but I guess if you want to talk about the second semifinal, that's fine. <laughs> the Danes need some love. I mean, obviously, do, else, elsewhere on um, Football Ramble, we've talked extensively about England, and quite rightly so. They've had an incredible tournament. As I said on the Ramble, I kind of think that Mancini, Italy and Southgate's England are comparable, not in the way that they play football, but in the sense that you have these coaches that people weren't completely sold about at the beginning mm. who have achieved total buy-in mm. from all the players in the squad and and from from the fans as well, you know, to, to, to feel that, you know, that they're prepared for different situations. I think that's really important. But I, I, I think... Really, I think it's a really interesting point because now I think about it. Because, um, of course, France, big favourites for this tournament, but the collective doesn't come together. That they and they I, felt like they hadn't done their homework. And, and yeah. actually, because I thought when you said that, yes, you know, I, I thought all the way through, England and Italy, two teams with tremendous buy-in, but maybe all four of the teams in the semi-final, and it's not a coincidence, mm. were four of the teams with the best buy-in. Yeah, I think that they're, they're, they're a combination of buying and talent. They're four coaches that you can really believe in, mm. I, I think. And, you know, you look at Casper uh, Hulmand, who the, amazing. The, the leadership he's shown mm. to like deal with an unprecedented situation in the Christian Eriksen situation. 
and let them get to a point where they can not only just work with the emotion of that, but get past the tactical bit of losing your best player. I mean, mm. Denmark always had like great integrity in their spine, as you'd probably say if you were a physio, <laughs> in that you look at um, Schmeichel, who's amazing, uh, Kier, um, Christensen, who's been great, Delaney, uh, Hoybjerg, who's been Breath wonderful as well. That's very good. Yeah, I, I th- well, that's the thing I thought before the start of the tournament, that Denmark's spine could take them a certain way, but they were missing the number nine, really. Now, Kasper Dolberg emerges that for, for a little bit, but I think maybe showed us why he's a good player, but at least not yet an elite player. Um, but the, the, the way that Hulman managed the whole situation emotionally and tactically was incredible. But as you say, with Luis Enrique, the build-up that Spain had was absolutely absurd, really. Mm. Like, like the, the, the fact that Busquets, the player Bust with the it. most experience... Bust it. it. But before that, at the start of the tournament, he gets corona. Mm. And so the team have this weirdest preparation ever for a tournament where they all have to train individually. They have this other squad of 18, in case anyone else drops out or in case numerous players drop out, that are training parallel but away from them. And despite the lack of experience in the squad, despite the fact that Busquets is not available for the first bit, despite the fact that Sergio Ramos isn't there, Luis Enrique takes the weight and he deals with all of it. And I think with all these four coaches, real leaders. I think you've hit on a really, really important point, actually. Uh, Talking about the coaches for a moment, they all have a similar kind of presence about them. They're all calm. All four of them are relatively calm. I know Mancini takes off his jacket at a moment when he's... That's <laughs> just so he can hang up on his shoulder afterwards. Of and course cool. it is. Of course it is. It's got to have style to the very last moment. But they're all very similar. And they approach the game and their man management. It looks as if I haven't seen any of them shout at players on the pitch, for example. It does seem as if we're looking at a new generation of coaches, which are perhaps more... Um, effective in national, in international tournaments for nations rather than club coaches. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always fascinated by what it takes to be a, a success, well, in, in all areas of the sport. But I do think it's a different profile for an international manager to to a to a club team manager. And um, Mancini's definitely going nowhere at Italy. I, I can't imagine Southgate's going to jump off this job before another run at the World Cup, having gone this way. But of course, you do. You, you could wonder. And even Luis Enrique, Enrique, well, I suppose he's had different experiences, hasn't he? Because mm, mm. he had an experience in Italy at Roma. It was a difficult period, but it didn't go great. But then a lot of time has passed since that and managers also, like all the rest of us, develop and, and gain knowledge and, and change. But once upon a time, it was seen as if, you know, if you did well at club level, you could manage your national team. It was and an they're unconnected now. Yeah, well, that's yeah. exactly it. It's I a think, different kind of management, I isn't think, it? I think that's it. And you're... you're your point about not being someone who just shouts at the players. I mean, personally, I don't think that massively flies in the modern game anyway. But I think particularly in this context, when players show up for a major tournament, they're knackered. And that's why we've always had this difficulty with major international tournaments in recent years, because the calendar is so stacked. It's not particularly conducive to great football. It's certainly not conducive to energetic football, which is why a lot of teams who play quite a conservative game. And I suppose England are in addition to, 
to that cannon. And I think it's absolutely the right way to uh, approach a tournament rather than the traditional Premier League way, as I've, I've, I've said elsewhere. But I, I agree with you, Dot, and I think I don't think players turn up at the end of a long season and want to be shouted at. Mm. Any like, like especially like after a long season, I think you have to be a bit a bit smarter than that. It's just crossed my mind that um, a memory of when I spoke to Gigi Buffon most recently, he said to me, we talked about coaching and I said, would that be something you're interested in? And he said, not club management, but actually he'd really like the sound of doing international management. So that's interesting that even like, perhaps from the perspective of the people doing it, well, some people, um, I think some managers, and again, talking about club managers going and doing it, I think Conte struggled so much with the gaps Conte struggled so much with the hang on, what am I doing in this in-between bit? Like I should mm. be working. But perhaps there are some personalities that just are better suited to that pace as well. Oh, how about that? Done with style. Italy are European finalists again. Schmeichel saves. Kane is there to follow in. Wembley is alive and Okay, let's look back over the the amazing month of football that we've had in this Euro 2020 tournament. It could have it could have been disastrous, you know, given it had been postponed a year and in the midst of the coronavirus mm. crisis. And then, of course, with the D- Denmark-Finland game to uh, start off the weekend, opening weekend with, you know, it didn't bode well. But yet, I imagine it's turned out to be quite a tremendous tournament, one one of the best Euros ever. What are your highlights, first of all, Nikki? Um, I know we've just talked about them. Obviously, my first highlight was just... Uh, discovering that this Italy was going to play at the level that they that we'd seen them doing in, in other competitions. I think the start of that tournament in Turkey was really um, such a moment because Turkey was everyone's dark horse and they were, of course, one of the low moments. And, and to see Italy come out and produce that performance before we knew how bad Turkey were going to be was, was a real moment for me. But um, there were loads of great games in, in the group stage. There's been loads of great games all the way through. Um Robin Gosens having his moment of, of uh, showing up and, and scoring goals and then Thomas Muller making an awful pun about Robin Golson. Uh, Robin Golson, <laughs> sorry. Um, uh, Myla for, for Denmark, who's sort of shown a little bit of that at Atlanta, but then producing that ridiculous outside of the boot cross. Which game was that? Um, Checks. Czech game, yeah. yeah. Paul Pogba's goal against Switzerland and the celebration afterwards when you just thought, oh, France mean business. And then, of course, everything that came afterwards. And those two games in two days where 3-1 turned out to be the most dangerous lead. I've just listed like a whole bunch of things rather than picking <laughs> them, haven't I? I? I think that's allowed. I, I, I don't think you really can slim it down to one. Um, yeah, there were, look, there were an incredible amount of great moments. I think we've been spoiled I, I think it kind of feeds into the intrinsic unpredictability of sport at the moment um because there there is a lot going on in the world and I I think that's that that's reflected in sport um I enjoyed the return of Karen Benzema mm. even though whether it worked for France in an overall sense I think maybe like the, with what happened to France I think we look at 
the way, the difficulty in Benzema and Bappe and um, Griezmann clicking together. And it feels like not a Benzema issue, but a France issue and the way that they seemed very unprepared tactically anyway. It, it, it felt as if there was a lot of stuff half finished. The way they changed the three at the back against Switzerland, which was a total mess and left them a half behind the, the eight ball there. But Benzema on his own, looking fantastic, especially that equalising goal against Switzerland where he takes the touch and reaches for the ball behind him. That is an astonishing piece of play. And it's almost a footnote in this in this tournament mm. now. A bit like Cristiano Ronaldo becoming the first player to um, play in five and score in five um, European Championships. I mean, that seemed like more of an inevitability. I had to write the um, the sidebar, the inc- incidental piece for that first game in Budapest between Hungary and Portugal. And I'm doing a bit of the time because I'm doing a few radio hits and stuff as well. And I get to the last 10 minutes and I thought, I've written the whole thing like he's scored his goal. He hasn't scored his goal oh, yet. God. But 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 this <laughs> I know you get you're getting the fear off me there, aren't you? But but of course, because it's Cristiano Ronaldo, you always believe he'll find a way. And he always does find a way. And it, it is funny, but I like obviously the the comparisons between him and Messi will be made forever. There's no need for them to be made forever, but they will be made forever. But I think I realised at that moment uh, when he scored his, his his penalty against Hungary and you know made it look easy against a very good goalkeeper in Peter Gulashi, and the way he responded directly to the crowd there, who'd given him some stick and some of it actually really offensive and unsavoury, um, and like he never tries to duck that. Messi's not like that at all. But of course, Messi has never been baited to the extent that Cristiano Ronaldo has. Like I, I remember doing a Portugal game in Bosnia years ago and the, the day before, they're training on this horrendous pitch at Zenica and some local scallies like climb the fence to just shout, Messi, Messi, <laughs> over the fence. And he, he turns around as a cursory look gives him the middle finger and just <laughs> just carries on practicing. That never happens with, with, with Messi at all. And just the, the fact that, you know, we talked just in the previous bit, didn't we, about maybe Juventus looked better without him. I mean, I don't think that's a financial reality of the situation mm. they're in. That's a different discussion. But the fact that he just carries on regardless, it is something. And of course, he could finish up joint top scorer in this tournament along with Patrick Schick and yeah I'm I'm biased to strikers but the goal against Scotland I'm sorry I'm not broaching any goalkeeper criticism there that was an amazing amazing goal and there have been some really good ones in this tournament but that, that's that's the one for me that was a brilliant goal I mean this was not a brilliant goal in terms of the look of it but I can't help but thinking about Goran Pandev scoring um, for, for North Macedonia and and the, the that was good. The just the joy for him in that moment, and 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 seeing him get to have that moment. I think it was, I think it was one one when he scored that even as well. So for it was equaliser, wasn't it? Yeah. At least for a moment, it felt like it was it was something. Um, another goal I think I'm going to remember is Goretzka's goal against Hungary, the second one when we'd had that whole ridiculous UEFA saga where they said they couldn't light up the stadium in rainbow colours, and 
um, and he just gave that heart gesture to the to the ultras to the ultras and yeah, yeah I think some of us were like good on you Leon Goretzka who happens to be someone who's spoken up quite sort of vocally for, for LGBT people in sport and, and in general so yeah that was a moment I remember so many Andy and, mm. and, and Don like I'm just going to keep thinking about more and more things the longer this goes do you know, I think this has been a tournament and, you know, you brought up the LGBT issues there. There have been the Black Lives Matter issues, the taking of the knee, mm. uh, other teams applauding England doing that, amongst other things. There have been so much drama off the pitch as well that feeds in to the absolutely amazing tournament. Uh, great goals, fantastic. Great to see all the youngers coming through as well yeah. because we got yeah. to see a lot of young players from all over the place. You know, the uh, Danish uh, youngster who scored the goal Damsgaard. against England. Damsgaard, very good. Pedri, who was Spain's best player. Pedri. I said, but just Damsgaard probably doesn't have that tournament if what happens to Ericsson doesn't happen, which is yeah. such mm, a weird mm, thing to think mm, about. Yeah. Like, because it's, it's a great exciting tournament for him and also something that only happened because something really awful happened so but he he is up there now amongst the players who will probably not be where he is now Mm. in a season or so's time uh, which leads us to talk of another issue so after the tournament, we know that players get signed after these major international tournaments. You've had yourself a segue there, yeah. haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> I try. I try so hard. Uh, well, who's going to be where after this tournament? It does feel as if we're going to see some players moving over the summer transfer oh. window, amongst other things. I guess the question really, Dotton, is how many of them won't make it to Paris Saint-Germain? Because at the, at the moment... That's the question. At, at the moment, they're, they're they're filling their pockets, aren't they? Because it has been quite quiet out there. And yet they've um, picked up uh, Ginny Wijnaldum. They've uh, sealed the deal for Ashraf Hakimi. And it'd be really interesting to get Nicky's side of that in, in, in a minute. Um Donnarumma, of course, is on the way. And what they're going to do with him in terms of... <laughs> Big guy. Do, do they even loan him out? Because they just signed Kelo Navas to a new contract. They've actually got eight goal, eight first-team goalkeepers on the books at, at the moment. Are totally certain that that deal will go through? Because I'm interested in that situation. Mino Raiola is pretty aggressive in the way he represents his clients. Mm. And I... I struggle with this idea that he's happy for his client to go somewhere and be a backup. But I I think that's the thing. I think he won't. I think there's a strong possibility of him being loaned to another elite club. Mm -hmm. There's there's that feeling in France that basically, on a sporting sense, signing Donnarumma at this point makes absolutely no sense. But the fact is, he's one of the best goalkeepers in the world and he's available for free. brilliant in this tournament. I should have mentioned him talking about the potentially special players in that Italy team, he is, he's special. But I, th- I think because he is, as you say, so special, to be that age and have that amount of experience is mm. ridiculous. So you, you buy him and you figure out, you sign him and you figure out the other stuff later. Because even if it didn't work out at PSG, sign him sign him to a four or five year deal, sell him in a couple of years. I mean, I, I know... And Raiola will take half the money again. Sorry. <laughs> happy for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad, is it? But I, I think you, you you look at that and then you look at Sergio Ramos going there as well. Mm. I mean, the only one who they can't get to sign at the moment is Kylian Mbappe. And there's the possibility of him going into the last year of his contract, which, again, I think that Paris won't feel that uncomfortable about it. Obviously, they'd like him signed again before he goes into the last year of his contract. But at the moment... 
who else can pay him? Man City. And he said, "What well, the, the thing is, that's at the end of his deal. They could pay him. They can't get him now because most other clubs, 99% of other clubs, they won't let a player go into the last year of his contract because you risk losing him for nothing. Whereas Paris, A, they're still very committed to the idea of keeping him. And he hasn't given, he said, this is my decision for now. He hasn't said, I'm definitely leaving. Also, what do you buy for the person who's got everything? You can't offer, there's, there's no amount of money that you can offer them that makes it worth them selling him. So, where do you go? And I think with Mbappe, he's always been consistent along. He said, prove to me there's a project. Now, that puts a lot of pressure on Leonardo, I think. But in terms of these signings, shows enormous intent, right? Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, it's. I mean, that's a um, definitely a, a conversation that I think... Well, it's not new, is it? But I think that it certainly has been had around Verratti before as well. Is is it enough to just be at Paris Saint-Germain and win Ligue 1 a lot, not even win that this mm. season? Um, are you ever going to become everything that you could do as a player if you stay there? And I... <laughs> I think that's got to be a really important question for Mbappe right now. I just think, where's the other project at the moment? Well, because yeah. if, if Real Madrid's his ultimate endgame, I don't I don't think you join them now. And I think if things haven't improved there vastly, it'll come to Real Madrid, actually. If, mm. if things haven't improved there vastly in a year's time, it, he's smart enough to know, why am I going to go to a club where they can't afford to surround me with anything yeah. once, once they've paid for me? He's not wasting his time doing that. If you're going to do that, you might as well say, well, you know, look at my age now. Why don't I just sign a two-year contract extension at PSG? Then I make my decision again when I'm 24 or when I'm 25 or or whatever. And he can do that. And really, this might have a massive effect on how superstars manage their lives and their transfers going forward. I mean, obviously, the plus side for PSG is they owe Monaco a 35 million euro bonus at the point where they extend Mbappe or they sell him. The only condition under which that is not payable is if he leaves for nothing. So every cloud has a silver lining. It'll be interesting to see because this is, I think, the first summer transfer window where <coughs> Barcelona and Real Madrid are not featuring. No. And usually we, we look at who they're signing because that will have a knock-on effect right across Europe in other major leagues as well. Will will the signing of um, all these players in Europe have a knock-on effect, do you think, elsewhere? For example, you know, um, I suppose he went for, as a free as well, didn't he, Wijnaldum from Liverpool? Yeah. He went as a free. I mean, of, so that won't have an immediate knock-on effect there, but you could imagine... Um, that having a knock-on effect just because of the position he plays elsewhere. Yeah, and of, of course, an, another another potential freebie is Leo Messi, who I strongly believe will stay in Barcelona. He will. But basic, basically, the the problem is, at the moment, they can't afford to register any of their... They're, they're, they're too far over the wage cap. So they, they can't afford to sign it they can't afford to re-sign him they need to clear the decks before they do maybe that's part of the thinking behind Paris Saint-Germain because Real Madrid not in a great place they've not got a lot of money they need to rebuild the squad the Bernabeu is not even going to be ready for the start of next season then you look at Barcelona who can't even register their new signings or re-sign their star player because they're so skint they're talking about giving away Miralem Pjanic who they signed for 60 million a year ago 
just to get rid of his wages. They're talking about taking a 100 million plus loss on Felipe Coutinho because they're that deep in the hole. Now, I th- I think when you talk about knock-on effects, that affects the way that PSG do things, I think. Because A, they don't have to bet the farm to get better. But if you're aggressive in the market, you can create a decent-sized gap between yourself and traditionally the two biggest clubs in the world. So, the end of the season here on on the continent. Uh, We'll reconvene in a few weeks' time again for a new season. But meanwhile, as we always ask you at the end of a conversation, we always ask you to recommend a game of the week uh, for for listeners to uh, check out. But this time, obviously, we're not asking for a game of the week as a game that's upcoming. We want you to both recommend a game of the tournament that we can look back on, maybe watch on YouTube or elsewhere. Andy, do you want to go first? Croatia's three, Spain five. No doubt about it. Embrace the chaos. I think it's just because it's a it's a pair, isn't it? You've then got to go with France three, Switzerland three. <laughs> I just I just think you should watch those games as we did, effectively back to back, and remember how this tournament felt. Which one do you watch first? I'm trying to remember which way around they had. Croatia was first, yeah, wasn't Croatia. it? Yeah. Watch them. Watch them in the order they were played. I think that's that's a perfect. <laughs> It's a perfect, perfect companion this tournament. Yeah. So thanks to both Nikki and Andy. That's it for on the continent for this season. But don't worry, we're not going anywhere. We'll be back for another season very shortly. This was a Stack production and part of the Acast Creative Network.